of the verses which Larry led us in reading, there's one that I'm going to focus on this morning as the pivotal verse. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. I would invite you to take another look at that verse. Notice what the Apostle Paul says, and he says, And indeed, all who desire to live, and the verb live is suggestive of a perpetual desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. Friedrich Nietzsche, one of three German thinkers of the 19th century, cast an extraordinarily long shadow over the 20th century. He was a philosopher. And he was a philosopher who had absolutely no taste for Christianity. In fact, he was very antagonistic against Jesus and against what we know as Christianity. This is what he said in his diatribe against Christianity entitled Antichrist, which was published in 1888. This man who died, by the way, in 1900 on the threshold of the 20th century. Nietzsche said, and I quote, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one enormous and innermost perversion, the one great instinct of revenge, for which no means, no means are too venomous, no means are too underhanded, no means are too underground, no means too petty. In saying what he said, he set the tone for the incredible persecution that characterized the Church of Jesus Christ during the 20th century. It may surprise you to learn that more Christians were martyred in the name of Jesus Christ in the 20th century than all succeeding 19th centuries put together. Persecution is certain for anyone who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, which raises a very important question, why? The simplest and most accurate answer I can give to that question is because of our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your place here in 2 Timothy and turn back toward the front of your Bible to the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter. And listen to the words of Jesus on the eve of his own destruction as he was speaking to his inner circle of disciples. The Gospel of John in chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, record these rather sobering words. If the Lord hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. John Stott has written, The godly arouse the antagonism of the world. And why? Turn to John chapter 3 since we're in the vicinity for further clarification of why. If you and I are godly, we will raise the ire of the world. Why the world will hate us as they hated Jesus. Why the world will respond in persecution toward us as they responded in persecution toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, and this is the judgment, that the light is coming to the world. And obviously he was speaking about himself. 
Later in the Gospel of John, he describes himself as the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And in the Sermon on the Mount, you're aware of the fact that Jesus says about us, who are followers of Christ, that we are the light of the world. So what we need to understand is when Jesus speaks of the light coming in the world, he's speaking primarily of himself, but he's also speaking of us who are followers of his. That the light is coming to the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So, our identification with Jesus, as we seek to follow Christ, results in our being persecuted. This is why we're persecuted, because of our identification with Christ. If we are light, just like Jesus' light, Life revealed certain things that were evil about people. So our lives, not because we go around pointing fingers at people, but because we are indeed light. The Bible says about us in the book of Ephesians, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. As we follow Christ, we will please the Lord. And the result will be that light will be shown out of our lives onto the lives of people and their deeds will be exposed for what they are in many cases evil and people don't like to be shown up. That's the bottom line. Now, who is behind this persecution? Probably would have guessed his name is Satan. And we know what the Bible says about the world. The world hates Jesus. The world hates his followers. The world is organized in rebellion against God by none other than the devil himself. The Bible says in 1 John 5:19, the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. The entire world lies under his control. Jesus describes him in John 12:31 as the ruler of this world. In writing to the church at Smyrna in the book of Revelation, in the second chapter of Revelation, this is what Jesus says to that church. Jesus says, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. So who is the one who is behind any form of persecution in my life or your life? Satan is the one who is behind the difficulties which we experience. Now, please return to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul would have described himself as one who was godly in Christ Jesus. He would qualify his godliness, by the way. And we must always qualify any degree of godliness we have by recognizing that our godliness is not the result of any, some, anything in us that's necessarily good. It has to do with our being in Christ Jesus. Those of us who have been born again by the living and abiding word of God have a position in Christ that will result in godliness, which will in turn result in a certain degree of persecution in our lives. Now, let's look at the Apostle Paul's description of himself in verse 10 of Second Timothy chapter 3. Speaking to Timothy, he said, you followed my teaching. Now, this is one reason that he was persecuted because of his teaching. But there was another reason he put what he taught into practice. He practiced what he preached. Timothy also followed Paul's conduct. And his purpose, his aim in life, the aim of the Apostle Paul was to please God. That also became the aim of Timothy, his son in the faith. And that should be our desire. Our desire should be that we be people who bring glory to God and are pleasing to God. He also describes how Timothy followed his faith, which probably includes the idea of his faithfulness. His patience. Now, this is an interesting word. The word which is translated patience here is the word 
which means long-suffering, actually. It's the idea of suffering that is stretched out. It's a word which is used to describe God in His long-suffering toward us, His patience toward us, when He had every right and all the authority to squelch us in our sin. However, in His forbearance and His great love for us, He endured our sin and our attacks upon Him when we were in our sin. This word is used always to describe patience in relationship to aggravating people whom we have some authority and right to exercise retaliation toward. Do you get the picture? The Apostle Paul had the right as an apostle to exercise retaliation toward the people who were false teachers in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was, but he refused to do that. Here's another aspect of the way that Timothy followed Paul in love. Now, Paul's love was a fulfillment of what is commonly called the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This was his motivation. In contrast, I might add, to the false teachers in the church at Ephesus. Let's look at what was characteristic of their love. Verse 2, we're only going to look at a couple of three things here in the interest of time today. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, And then he concludes verse 4 by saying, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Do you see the contrast between godless people and godly people? Do you know that these people were in the church? They were there probably every time the church at Ephesus met. Excuse me. They were there in the church. But they were godless. They had a form of godliness. They went through the motions, but there was no substance to their relationship to God. Here we see, however, in the Scriptures that Paul is describing a different kind of love. Their love was lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. Whereas Paul's love was a love for God, as was Timothy's, and a love for other people. And then here's this word perseverance. In contrast to the previous word patience, this word perseverance has to do with patience as it relates to Things which try us versus people which try us. There's another reason why those who live godly in Christ Jesus suffer. It's because we're living in the last days. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, by the way, for your information, when the Scriptures use the phrase, the last days, it's talking about any days after the time that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. These are the last days. Now, as we near the last day, that one great day, when Jesus Christ will return and history will come to a sudden climax, things will intensify in terms of people being lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. And by the way, do you find yourself saying that you're a follower of Christ? But finding, as you evaluate your own life, that you're more interested in yourself, in pleasure, or in money than in God. If so, you need to strongly evaluate your so-called relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another reason. It's given to us by Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. I didn't finish quoting that verse where Jesus says, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. God uses difficulty in our lives to test us, to help us to grow. We will never grow apart from a certain amount of testing and difficulty in our lives. 
Now, what form will this testing and persecution take? In the Apostle Paul's life, look at verse 11 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. These are three cities in the region of Galatia. And we know from Acts the 14th chapter, verse 13, through the next chapter, that there were several persecutions which were caused in his life, among which was he was stoned. Now, that's extreme persecution. He was left for dead. This was a part of his following Christ and what resulted from that. Hopefully, that will never occur to you and me, but we don't know for sure about that. This message that I'm sharing with you today probably does not touch your felt needs as much as some other messages you may have heard me preach before. And there's a good reason for that. It's because we just don't live godly lives in Christ Jesus. That's why it doesn't touch us. If we were to go to other parts of the world today, if we were to go to the Sudan today, if we were to go to North Korea today, if we were to go to Indonesia today, if we would go to any number of other places in the world today, and we were meeting in a place like this, we would be meeting with the possibility that our meeting would be interrupted, and with the probability, if it were interrupted, that we would be physically tormented or persecuted as a result of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. I would suggest that you get a book entitled The Blood of the Martyrs. It's written by a family, and I can't remember the name right now, but I'll get that name to you one of these days when I don't have a senior moment in the middle of my sermon. Starts with an H, that's all I could remember. But this is a great book, and it chronicles the persecution of the Church of Jesus Christ in the 20th century. It's an incredible account. The most recent issue of World Magazine does a timeline of highlights of persecution of the Church in the 20th century. And as I was reading it, actually last night I was reading it, and my heart was breaking. So I began to see the great price Christians are paying today for following Jesus, for living a godly life in Christ Jesus. There is physical difficulty. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read. Verses 32 through 34 of Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews says to these Hebrew Christians, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Let me point out the obvious. These Hebrews, these Jews who had converted to Jesus and followed Jesus as their Messiah and Lord, what had happened was they had suffered persecution. They'd had their belongings taken away. But not only that, the scriptures say that they were reproached Publicly, They were made a public spectacle of. Now, you may know or may not know that there were certain accusations which were made against first century Christians, some of these very Christians. They were called cannibalistic because they had 
the Lord's Supper where they took the body and the blood of Christ. Imagine that. Christians being called cannibals. They were not only called cannibals, they were called incestuous because they were brothers and sisters. And before they would observe the Lord's Supper, they would have a thing called the love feast. And rumors got out that there was incest going on within this cult known as Christianity. They were called atheists of all things because they refused to give a pinch of incense in honor of Caesar. And they refused to say Kaiser es curios, which interpreted means Caesar is Lord. They reserved that for Jesus. Jesus was the only one who deserved to be called Lord. Now, the likelihood of your and my being persecuted physically, as I've already mentioned, is slight in this day and time in the West. However, We are subject to public spectacle through reproaches. May I give you an illustration of this? Last fall, as is always the case at the end of the college football season, there's like a carousel of college coaches. It's like a revolving machine where coaches change. The coach at Stanford went to be the head coach at Notre Dame. And... Several applicants were making application to become the head coach at Stanford, among whom was Ron Brown. Ron has had a distinguished career of 15 years as an assistant coach after having played at the University of Nebraska. He has a great career. He also is one who writes an article every month for Victory Magazine, which is the publication of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He has a call-in talk show where he answers questions related to Christianity. So he moonlights by being a talk show host of the Christian variety. When he went to be interviewed, he didn't even get an interview. He went to California at the expense of Stanford, but he didn't even get an interview. The reason? Not because he's an African-American, which he is, but because he is a Christian. Listen to what the Nebraska Daily said about his rejection for this position. His religious views, among other things, were incompatible with Stanford's liberal student body and active gay community. Now, if I understand the classical definition of liberalism, it's the definition of open-mindedness, inclusiveness, and diversity. If we were to go and ask some representative of Stanford University today, would you consider your community an inclusive and diverse community? The answer would be instantly, yes, we are. But evidently, there's no room for a Christian, not someone who's going to go in and try to convert all his players, but someone who has entitlement to his rights In his own description of what happened, this is what Ron Brown said. He said, if I had been rejected based upon the fact that I am black, the whole world would have known it. But because I was rejected because I am a Christian, it barely made any dent in the public media whatsoever. Christians are vilified. I'd just like to read just a few of many sources I could cite At this point, things that have happened since 9-11. You know, there is a new kind of profiling that's going on in America today. It's religious profiling. Religious profiling. Five days after the September 11th attacks, the New York Times, which is considered by most in the media to be the benchmark piece of publication, an article was written by correspondent Serge Schmiemann. This is what he wrote, that the terrorist opposed values cherished in the West 
as freedom, tolerance, prosperity, religious pluralism, and universal suffrage, but abhorred by religious fundamentalists, and not only Muslim fundamentalists, as licentiousness, corruption, greed, and apostasy. His implication was clear, by the way. Conservative Christians in America, Bible-believing Christians, link liberty to licentiousness and prosperity to greed. In that same publication, the New York Times, on October 7th, Andrew Sullivan wrote an essay which labeled the war on terrorism, and I quote, a religious war, but not of Islam versus Christianity and Judaism. Rather, it is a war of fundamentalism against face of all kinds that are at peace with freedom and modernity. Now, here's his definition of fundamentalism. The blind recourse to texts embraced as literal truth, the injunction to follow the commandments of God before anything else, the subjugation of reason and judgment and even conscience to the dictates of dogma. By the way, among the blind subjugators of reason, he said, are fundamentalist Christians. Now, you might not consider yourself a fundamentalist, but in his mind, anybody who believes that the Bible is God's word and seeks to align life under the teachings of Scripture as one follows Jesus would be, by Mr. Sullivan's definition and by many of his cohorts, a fundamentalist. So don't let me pick only on the New York Times today, and I am bashing a little bit, so God forgive, and I hope I'm doing it in the right spirit, and I'll clarify that in a little bit. So if you're turned off by what I've said so far, just hold on, because I'm going to give a disclaimer in a moment, which I think is the right way to approach this whole situation of our being vilified as followers of Jesus. The Washington Post article on December the 30th postulated Christian-Muslim equivalence, basically the same. This is how it read. Today, there are Christian fundamentalists who attack abortion clinics in the U.S. and kill doctors, Muslim fundamentalists who wage their sectarian wars against each other. And by the way, there's no cause or justification for killing anybody. There's no cause for that. In fact, if the writer of this article had really taken the pulse of the Christian community, what he or she would have discovered is that Christians would say probably 99.9% it is wrong to murder people who work in an abortion clinic. It is wrong. Just because we don't believe in it, just because we believe it's murder, it's wrong for us to take life. That is not the way of Christ. It is not under any means. Well, here's a last reference to the media. The Atlantic Monthly's February 2002 cover story entitled, Oh God's Plural, ended with analysis of how far Christianity is growing, how fast, rather, it's growing in Africa and South America. And this is what the writer concludes, and this is chilling. More chilly than in here, by the way. It is chilling. This is what the author concludes, that in the 21st century, the big problem cult is going to be Christianity. That's in a publication right here in these United States, and these... United States. Imagine that. Well, friends, we're being vilified. Is it bearable? Yes. Paul says, no trial has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you can bear. But when you are tried, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. We're going to see the way out that the Lord's provided for us from his word in just a moment. It may surprise you. How long will it last? Well, let's look again at 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, verse 13. Actually, let's look at verse 11 first. What persecutions I endured in the middle of verse 11. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. You know, our trials will last until the Lord delivers us. We have no control over when that will be, but they will last until the Lord delivers us. What is the right response? Now, this is where I'm seeking to be practical, having been rather theoretical to this point. What is the right response? Are we to retreat? Are we to get into our little Christian ghettos and our little Christian subculture and just retreat, withdraw from the world? That's what the devil would like for us to do, but just think about it for a moment. If we retreat, how will the world have an opportunity to persecute us? They've got to have something to do, right? To persecute us. Well, the the main idea here is we've got to be engaging the world if we're going to win the world to Christ. And let me interject this parenthetical thought. When the world persecutes us who follow Jesus, just like they've persecuted Jesus, they're only doing what comes naturally to them. They don't know any better. We have had the blinders taken off. The God of this world blinded us at one time, but now those blinders have been removed. So we understand, we see. So we must not retreat. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, I do not call you to disassociate with the immoral people of this world, with swindlers, and he goes and lists a lot of people. We've got to be in there with them. We've got to be salt and light to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard the phrase that Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. We've all heard that. We need to be in the world, as I've already said, so that we can rub shoulders with unbelievers to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. But we need not be assimilated into the world. We need not be of the world. In, but not of. Because if we assimilate into them, there'll be no reason for them to persecute us because we're not living a godly life in Christ Jesus. We're living quite the opposite of that kind of life. Only those in Christ and in the world at the same time suffer persecution. So we're not to retreat. Well, then, are we to retaliate? Sometimes when I read things like I've read recently... Uh, It really makes my blood boil about the way Christians are being treated, not only in this country, it's very mild here. We're really wimps when it comes to persecution. We would wilt under the kind of pressure that is being placed on Christians in some of the nations that I have mentioned this morning. We would just completely wilt. But the truth of the matter is, when I hear about those things, it really makes me want to retaliate. But is that right? Who is our example? Who indwells us? Was Jesus retaliatory? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, listen to what he says. Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, we are all familiar with the WWJD phenomenon. It comes from this phrase, to follow in his steps in 1 Peter chapter 2, 21. Verse 22 says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And what this simply means is he was being made fun of. He was being mocked, but he never responded. He uttered no threats while suffering, but kept, here's the key, entrusting himself to him, namely God the Father, who judges righteously. So what are we to do during this period 
in history, which really goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. We've always seen suffering in the church. What are we to do? What is our response? It's not to retaliate. It's to entrust ourselves to the Father. But here's to what we're to really do. We're to resist the devil. We need to understand that our struggle is not against the media. Our struggle is not against the intelligentsia. And here's another misconception which the general public, especially the intelligent part of the general public, has about Christianity. Christianity is not for idiots. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It will stand the scrutiny of the most logical evaluation that any of us could think of. It will do that. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Who is our opponent? It is the devil and his minions. So how are we to deal with this difficulty we face? Well, Jesus says we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We're to pray for them. You may remember the story of how Judah was sent into exile. It's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 29. And a letter came from Jeremiah the prophet on behalf of God to those people. And when the letter arrived, it said instead of being rebellious against those people, what I want you to do, God says, is I want you to buy land, I want you to marry and give in marriage, and I want you to pray for the peace of Babylon. Now, what was he saying? He was saying exactly what God wants us to do in our culture. Not to run and hide, not to be rude and retaliatory either, but we are to be salt and light. We're to live our lives out in the public square. We're to live our lives out in such a way that people, when they look at us as followers of Jesus Christ, they will see something, yes, that some will respond to by persecuting, but many others will respond to by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like when the centurion looked up and he saw Jesus after he expired and said, as he beat his breast with his fist, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Did Jesus retaliate when he was on the cross? In fact, his first words recorded from the cross are, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. When people were mocking Jesus and spitting in his face and when they were gambling for his garments and when they were doing everything imaginable to make his life incredibly miserable, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was praying for them. Father, forgive them. Stephen followed in his footsteps. Maybe Timothy had seen Paul get stoned in his native Lystra. And maybe that had been instrumental in Timothy's giving his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know for sure. But what we're to do is what God told the Judeans to do when they were in exile in Babylon. We are to live our lives in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, loving our neighbors and loving our enemies, by the way, because they're included in our neighbors. Loving those people who mock us and make fun of us and vilify us. We're also to lead a quiet life. This is hard for me because I like to talk. But we're to lead a quiet life. First Thessalonians 4.11, Paul says, lead a quiet life. And then he elaborates on that in First Timothy chapter 2 because he says, if we lead a quiet life, it will open the door for the spread of the gospel. Do you see Paul's heart? Do you see the heart of God? What does God want from us? He wants us to be bearers of the light. We are Christians. 
We're to people who are to bear the good news of Jesus Christ. And when we do this in a loving manner, the result is it has the possibility, if not the probability, to transform our culture. The way this culture will be transformed into a more godly culture is when we as Christians begin to live our faith out in full display for the world. When the people see this going on through our lives. We're to repent. Maybe I should have said this first. When certain media representatives speak of fundamentalism, sometimes they speak with more than just an objective eye when they write. Sometimes they've experienced discrimination themselves. They have not really experienced the love of Christ. We have not spoken the truth in love to them as we are supposed to do. They've seen that we've discriminated against people based upon race or socioeconomic level. You know, church, if we have done that, we need to repent. I miss some people who've been coming to this church for a while. And I ran into the mother of the son and asked her, I've missed, and I called their names. And she said, in her broken English, she said, They've quit coming, and the best I could de- determine from what she said as we tried to communicate, they've quit coming because Coronado, Coronado is a rich church. You know, we need to repent of that right away, if that's the case. We've neglected the poor, the fundamentalists, the conservative evangelical Christians. We have neglected social issues because we think they're too closely tied to liberalism and liberal Christianity. Listen, it's in the Bible. What does Jesus say the criteria will be for his determining whether you are a sheep or I'm a goat when we stand before the Lord? If you saw me naked, what did you do? You clothed me. If you saw me hungry, what did you do? You fed me. I was sick and you visited me. Jesus goes on to list several things. And he says, when you've done it unto the least of these brothers of mine, my brothers, Jesus said, you've done it unto me. We need to repent of legalism. If we have elevated our traditions above the Scriptures. Remember, Jesus had some of his most caustic remarks to make to people who had elevated their traditions, their time-honored and man-made traditions above the Word of God. They were legalists. Any aspect of legalism in our lives needs to be repented of. The gospel sets us free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, Jesus said. We need to rejoice. Wait a minute, Jesus. When I'm persecuted, I'm to rejoice? That's exactly what Jesus said. He says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you. And he goes on to say later, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Some of us have as a goal in our lives that all people would speak well of us. Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. He said, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, Jesus said, because your reward in heaven is great. We need to rejoice. And here again, this, I guarantee you, will make an impact on the people who persecute us. It may make them more mad to begin with, but in the long run, what it will do, it will make them scratch their heads and wonder why we have the kind of hope which we have. And they'll be asking us why. Rejoice. And then here's the last one. Reason. I've touched on this very briefly, but it bears repeating. Reason. We need to pray. We need to lead a quiet life. We need to speak the truth to people. The truth demolishes lies. And look at this passage of Scripture again in 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. How do we deal with deceit? We expose deceit to the truth. Correct? Who is the truth? Jesus himself calls himself the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. By saying that, he immediately divides humanity into two categories. Those who are following him and those who aren't. Those who are following Jesus are headed for what the Bible calls heaven. Those who aren't are headed for what the Bible calls hell. Eternal separation from God forever. People are lost. They need to know the way. Jesus is the way. He is the only way. When we come together with people and we calmly, rationally explain the truth of Christ and Christianity to them, some of them will be converted to follow Jesus, and they will see the error of their thinking. God says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together. As evangelical Christians or fundamentalist Christians, if you want to call me that, I'm not calling you that. If you want to call me that, I'm comfortable with that title. We have bought into Jeffersonian thinking. And the thinking of Clarence Darrow, the idea that they proposed and others have proposed, is that education leads to secularization. Well, not necessarily. Education is not bad. Learning is not bad. We need to learn. We have abandoned the institutions of learning as Christians. We've run away instead of penetrating and seeking the Lord's hand and helping us to change the environment there by being who we are in Jesus Christ. The truth here is that there is a rampant Christophobia in our day and time in America. It's real. And it has been used to confuse the general public Let me give an illustration as we conclude our time together. Earlier I was reading about how one of the writers of one of the articles that I cited, I think it was Andrew Sullivan, had equated Islamic fundamentalism and Christian fundamentalism as being the same thing. Basically the same thing. But that's not true. I haven't talked to a single evangelical Christian who is... Anti-Israel. I haven't talked to a single one who is anti-Israel and would like to see Israel wiped off the face of the earth. I haven't talked to a single one. I have not talked to a single fundamentalist Christian who would say that terrorism is okay. I haven't talked to a single one. I do know what we believe as evangelical Christians in this church. We believe what our founding fathers believed, that everybody, regardless of color, regardless of nationality, regardless of sex, regardless of any distinction which might be drawn between people, that everybody is created with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But a a radical Muslim, if you will study their history, and I wish there were time for that, but what you would discover is, and I'm not generalizing here, I know it because it comes right out of their writings, is that they believe the world is divided into two camps too, like we believe. The Dar al-Harb, which means the territory of war, 
in the Dar al-Islam, which means the territory where Islamic law rules. And it is part of the thinking of Muslims that the Dar al-Harb, the territory of war, should not be left undisturbed as far as war is concerned for more than ten years. There has to be a jihad because all the world belongs to Allah and it needs to be recovered. And the way you recover it, if you can't do it by persuasion, you do it by force. Now, I say this at the risk of being considered bashing Muslims in Islam. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying to show how distortion comes into play when comparisons are made by people who really don't know the truth. Whose fault is it that these people who have animosity toward the church of Jesus Christ, whose fault is it that they don't know the truth? Let me ask you, who has the truth? We have the truth in the person of Jesus Christ and in the power of his word. We have a huge responsibility to see that this thinking is corrected. And God will grant us the grace to do that as we ask him to. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you in Jesus' name to help us to be men and women, boys and girls, who first of all are committed to you, love you with all our heart, follow you with all our being, people who are truly godly people. Forgive us, Lord, for being too casual about our faith. And forgive us, Lord, for not loving our enemies. Forgive us for all the things we have said hatefully toward our enemies. Father, we ask you that you would forgive us for discriminating against anybody because of anything about them. We thank you, Lord, that you are God who permits people to go their own way. To make their own choice about whether to follow you, Lord. We thank you for that. And help us to be the same kind of people, but help us to be men and women who are light and salt, Lord. To have a passion and a compassion for people who do not know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.